Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports. Download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play today. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, Prize Picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Prize Picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget the promo code GOODSEATS at prizepicks.com or download the Prize Picks app today. And now, here's our show. From Colt Stadium in Houston, the Colt 45's game of the day is on the air. This evening's game between the Colt 45's and the Cincinnati Reds is brought to you by... The American Tobacco Company, makers of Pell-Mell famous cigarettes. For those who are particular about taste, yes, particular people take particular pleasure in the good taste of Pell-Mell. Outstanding. And by the Pearl Brewing Company, brewers of Pearl Beer. Better because it's brewed with famous spring water from the country of 1100 Springs and Country Club Malt Liquor. Not a beer or a nail, but a totally different kind of drink. It's mighty good. Well, tonight's game here getting underway in just a few moments. The Reds and the Colt 45s will wrap up our first homestand of the year. However, our road trip coming up will be a very brief one. We'll be gone just over the weekend. Tomorrow, Saturday, and Sunday we'll be in St. Louis. And then right back here on Monday for four games against the Los Angeles Dodgers and three against the Chicago Cubs before we hit the road once again. We have a real nice night for baseball here in Houston again tonight. The temperature reading at the present time stands at 78 degrees. Humidity is 72%. And we have that strong wind again that's blowing out of the right field corner, coming across at between 15 and 20 miles an hour, blowing out toward the left side. This will wrap it up here against the Reds. The series going into tonight's game is all even up at one apiece. The starting pitcher for Freddie Hutchinson Cincinnati Ball Club tonight will be left-hander Joe Nuxall. And going for our Colt 45s, right-hander Ken Johnson. Now we'll be back with the starting lineups after this word from Pell-Mell, famous cigarettes. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, friends. How are you? It's uh, baseball time once again on your favorite podcast. Well, at least it's mine, and it's Good Seats Still Available. My name is uh, Tim Hanlon. Thank you, and welcome to the proceedings. Uh, As you know by now, it's our uh, little uh, journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports, and uh, our little uh, setup this week puts us in the mood, shall we? For 1964, we set the Wayback Machine for the Houston Colt 45s. You youngins out there may not remember that the first three years of the now Houston Astros existence, they were known as the Colt 45s. They were an expansion franchise in 62, playing in, I don't know, the mosquito-infested and hot and humidity of Colt Stadium, a uh, temporary stadium or whatever it might have been in the shadow of what ultimately became the home for the Astros, the Astrodome. Uh, in 1965. That clip, though, uh, sets the tone. That's 1964, a very famous game in Colt 45's history. 
Uh, April 23rd, 1964, uh, for that matter, Gene Elston behind the mic, setting up the tone of the game against the Cincinnati Reds, an early season affair uh, that was witnessed by, although a lot of people are going to say that perhaps that they were uh, at this game when they actually um, were not. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think 5,460, uh, excuse me, 5,426 people rattling around the old Houston Colts stadium for a one nothing shutout for the Cincinnati Reds over the Houston Colt 45s. However, uh, interesting piece of trivia in that game. Ken Johnson, the starting and complete pitcher for the Houston Colt 45s, threw a no hitter. Well, wait a minute, Tim. What are you saying? You throw a new hitter and no hitter, and they lost the game. Yes, that's what I'm saying. He was. Uh, let's see. Uh, Johnson gave up no hits uh, in the game to his former team, by the way, the Cincinnati Reds, and uh, that game's only run was scored in the top of the ninth. After wait for it, Pete Rose reached second base on an error by wait for it Johnson himself. Uh, Pete Rose then went to third on a ground out and scored on a second error. That one by the second baseman for the Colt 45s at the time, Nellie Fox on a ground ball by Vada Pinson. Uh, the opposing pitcher, Joe Nuxall, who also started the game and, and, and pitched a full game, he retired the side of the bottom half to make Johnson a no-hit loser and is now, Johnson was still the only player to ever lose an official no-hitter by himself. And... Um, that's uh, interesting stuff, and we we loved finding that clip. And it sets the tone for our conversation and our guest this week. Her name is Addie Beth Denton, and why is she interesting and important to this conversation? Well, her uncle was the manager of that Colt 45 team for the first, uh, just about all three of their first seasons. His name was Harry Kraft. Harry Kraft himself, uh, a pretty well-known uh Player for the Cincinnati Reds, played for about six seasons. Uh, he was um, a right-handed uh, center fielder, pretty much, played the outfield. Uh, but then he also, uh, after his playing days as, uh, uh, with the Reds, became a manager, a pretty uh, a well-established manager uh, for two teams that are near and dear to our hearts, the Kansas City A's or Kansas City Athletics, however you choose to to know them, uh, when they first arrived in Kansas City in 1957, he managed them for three seasons, uh, took a break, play, uh, managed, uh, was part of the managerial uh, orbit of the Cubs for 1961. Uh, he was known as a head coach. It was kind of a, an interesting little dynamic that they had the Cubs that season. And then returned to the uh, full uh, managerial uh, setup with the Colt 45s, themselves a an expansion franchise in 1962. And that was for about three seasons. Um, interesting uh, uh, setup. Uh, this uh, Harry Kraft um, essentially uh, had, uh, it was kind of known for sort of starting new stuff up. Uh, and as we'll talk uh, with his uh, niece, uh, Addie Beth Denton, in a few minutes, uh, you'll see that uh, Harry Kraft was... Um, uh, pretty much well-made for that that role because uh, it, not only in those uh, major league stops uh, and those two teams that we love to obsess about because they're no longer with us, or at least in their incarnations of the past, uh, was also uh, quite active in the minor leagues and became quite the tutor for very memorable uh, players. 
in uh, both of the major uh, league environments that he was part of, as well as the minors. Uh, in this conversation with Addie Beth coming up, uh, you'll hear memories and names uh, of people like Rusty Staub and Billy Martin, uh, Roger Maris, uh, Mickey Mantle, and Don Larson, just to name a few. These are players that were part of the craft orbit, shall we say. Uh, and uh, we get into all of those uh, with some first slash second person memories uh, with Addie Beth Denton, who uh, has written a, a, a little memoir about her time as a child in the shadows of her uncle, Harry Kraft, and her dad, who is also a baseball man. The book just out now uh, from uh, Texas Tech University Press is called 108 Stitches, A Girl Grows Up With Baseball. And it's a it's a beautiful uh, memoir, and uh, you'll hear in in Addie Beth's um, voice, y'all, uh, some of the sights and smells and sensations of growing up uh, with baseball from her uh, unique childhood vantage point, and um, a couple of uh, memories uh, sort of shine through in this in this conversation. Uh, some of the larger life, larger than life figures, and it's also frankly a bit of a. a a throwback to a time when baseball was not just for children, but for the country was just much more, I don't know, pristine, a bit magical, a little mystical at that. Um, and I think you'll hear that in um, in the voice of uh, Addie Beth Denton, our conversation this week, as we go back to uh, some kinder, gentler times, shall we say, in the uh, late 50s, early 1960s in Major League and Minor League Baseball. Uh, with Addie Beth Denton uh, as we talk about her uncle and the teams that he managed, Harry Kraft, coming up in a moment's time. How about a uh, promotional message from our pals this week at royalretros.com, royalretros.com, the king, the king they are of throwbacks. Yes, indeed. Uh, And uh, tremendous uh, stuff. As you well know by now, uh, if uh, you're looking for authentic, uh, painstakingly crafted, uh, uh, not T-shirts, not that they're not painstakingly crafted, but the uniforms uh, that uh, Royal Retros is known for. Um, uh, you will uh, find uh, those at in the, the realms of football leagues that have come and gone, uh, hockey leagues that have come and gone, basketball leagues that have come and gone, and yes, a ton of baseball in leagues that have come and gone as well as some things that still kind of linger. In this case, the Houston Colt 45s on royalretros.com. You will find a couple of awesome items to celebrate the three years of the Houston Astros' uh, uh, incarnation as the Colt 45s, their first three years as a Major League Baseball franchise in Houston. There's a beautiful Houston Colt 45s jacket uh, replete with the logo and the Texas flag on the sleeve. Uh, there is uh, two, there are two count them versions of the Houston Colt 45s t-shirt, um, a, a beautiful orange color uh, with the Colt 45s logo and the here come the Colts kind of uh, low, uh, uh, sort of a call to action, shall we say, as well as a gray version with the blue and, uh, and, and uh, orange uh, logo with the Houston Colt 45s emblazoned on. And of course, the piece de resistance is the Houston Colt 45's jersey. I have me one. Uh, I have the white one with the Colt's um, gun and uh, a, a smoking gun, that is, with the, the, the 
orange Colts letters uh, in the uh, in that logo. And there's also the Houston um, uh, with the name across Houston with the, the flag, Houston, the uh, Texas flag on the sleeve gray version. Uh, which is, I think, the away jersey, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, all of those things and more. There's even a Kansas, uh, a Kansas City, uh, a, um, a Houston Cult 45's cap there for you. Uh, among the many, many, many other great things to be found, St. Louis Browns stuff, Seattle Pilots stuff, et cetera, Washington Center stuff, et cetera, et cetera, at royalretros.com. It's awesome. You know it's awesome. Check them out. And uh, promo code for you for all of your purchases when you uh, visit early and often. Promo code SEATS, S-E-A-T-S. Promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Uh, as they say, please buy early and visit often at royalretros.com. Thank you to Dustin Alameda, the chief proprietor there. And uh, we appreciate his and their sponsorship of our little show. All right, let's move right along, shall we? Right into our wonderful conversation. Uh, here it is, Addy Beth Denton coming at you with some great memories, some Colt 45, some Kansas City A's, the Colt Stadium, all of it and more. And uh, we were uh, uh, just uh, uh, tickled pink to have a conversation with her. Here it is. Uh, please, as always, enjoy. So let's step back. This um, uh, you, you've written a, a quite unique memoir. Usually in baseball, um, which is one of the topics we you know we focus on all kinds of sports and and we we circle around, especially teams and leagues and situations that uh, aren't around anymore, right? And clearly, this memoir, this story, um, the people, or shall I say, indeed, person involved, uh, Harry Kraft, which we'll get into, uh, certainly traversed a few of those. But let's let's step back here. You're you're not a um, what is your professional career has nothing to do with baseball or this story, does it? It's absolutely right. I'm I'm a clinical psychologist with a Ph.D. and I taught child development at SMU. So you're already and then I, you've already figured uh-huh. me out then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was my career. And I have retired, and I have five grandsons. So, okay, clearly this is a bit of a labor of love then. Why? Uh, so give us some background then on where this story comes from uh, and how you're related to it. Okay. Well, I grew up in a baseball family. And I cannot, in going back and trying to, you know, remembering our childhood, uh, and I was blessed to have a wonderful childhood. I've just been blessed with the people who bored me, you know, who born to me and took care of me. And uh, I do not remember not knowing about baseball. Baseball was huge in our family. It was just like this current. Uh, and my parents would always go to the World Series, and I could never go because of school. And then my Uncle Harry Kraft, uh, who had the uh, biggest career, I guess you would say, uh, he would visit us. 
in the off season and he and I had a very close relationship. So it was always daddy and Uncle Harry were on the phone talking about baseball. Mother and daddy were going to games. And then when I got older, I went to games too, probably starting at age five. I could go. And and I learned how to be a baseball person. Well, it and by like, that. Yeah, it sounds like, like you didn't have a cho- like a choice uh, given. Uh, what was well, no, you. I always had a choice in my life. I could have done anything, you know. Uh, it was just I wanted to go to games for many reasons. Uh, and I think, first of all, it involved my relatives. And uh, what I remember when I would go to Kansas City, we would ride the train from Wichita Falls to Kansas City when Harry managed the club up there. And I remember the wonderful hotel we stayed in. And we would go to the ballpark around five o'clock, very early, and I would run down the stairs and I w- and then go to the dugout and he would be waiting for me and give me a hug. And so that was just something I liked to do. And uh, then as I got older, my children loved baseball and it was just like, I can't imagine not knowing about it. So where 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 did you grow up? Throckmorton, Texas. It has 800 people. It was a little larger when I lived there. Uh, my dad was a rancher. And from those big who the geography of Texas, can you give us a general Sure. Location? Between Wichita Falls and Abilene. It's, there are lots of little towns between Wichita Falls and Abilene, and it's wonderful ranch land. That's where I grew up. And your uncle, Harry Kraft, which we'll get in, who we'll get into uh, in just a few moments, was an uncle on which side of the family? Okay, daddy, my daddy, Tom Kraft, it was his younger brother. And they were from Mississippi. Heidelberg, Mississippi is where my dad, my other grandmother was from. And their dad was a shipbuilder, but died when they were very young. So they really didn't know him, uh, but they had some kind of grandmother. How did you learn of your uncle's craft, shall we say, for baseball? Um, Because uh, to put it in context for our audience, um, he was a major leaguer for a bunch of years in the late 30s and early 40s, and I'm sure a minor league Mm -hmm. career prior to that. Uh, I think mm-hmm. mostly for the Cincinnati Reds, if not exclusively. I, I'm not, I, you tell me. Yeah, that's that's right. And this will be interesting to you. Uh, I don't. I never knew that. Never knew that. When I went to Duke for graduate school in North Carolina, and he was really interested in the fact that I'd gone up there, and I never knew why. But then I found out. Uh, by asking around, not talking to him about it, that that's where the ball players went during World War II. They went to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and that's where they worked on their skills. I mean, they played baseball, they swam, uh, and they, that prepared those good athletes to go to World War II. He never talked about that, but I have his records uh, from that time. Uh, the United States official records. And he is so handsome. There's his little picture. And they said, well, why do you want to uh, 
go to war. And he said, I want to serve my country. Never knew any of that. Never knew any of that. Never knew how successful he had been in Cincinnati because he caught the second home run of Johnny Vandermeer's two home runs. Remember that? And there'll never be another game in which there are two home runs in a row. So by the same pitcher. So I, I mean the same pitcher. Yeah. So so mm-hmm. oh, that's interesting. So, so put that in in time perspective then, right? So you're you're now sort of looking backward towards his playing career in the late 30s, early mm-hmm. 30s. What mm-hmm. time was this that you're going to Duke and stuff? What had had he become a manager at that point or? Well, when I was Duke, when I was at Duke, he was he. Oh gosh, let me think. Uh, this would have been in the early seventies. Uh, would he have been in Houston? Gosh, I can't tell you for sure. We'd have to look that up. Yeah, sure. Houston called forty fives in in sixty two to sixty four. Uh, um, I, I guess I'm just curious as to how uh, you put these pieces together, so to speak. You're growing up uh, being a fan of baseball, going to games, uh, and but not fully cognizant, I guess, as a kid about why you're in these situations. And then over time, sort of recognizing maybe more of the backstory uh, of of Uncle uh, of Uncle Harry and and how how that sort of frankly maybe uh, influenced you maybe unwittingly in some respects. Yeah, I think too. There's so much uh, in baseball that you take in through your senses. And when you do that, like it looks a certain way, it's this beautiful and, and you see it the same way and you smell it the same way. I mean, when you walk into a stadium, you're going to see a perfectly, uh, you see the diamond. And then you see these men, usually you see white uniforms. When you're that far away, you really can't identify the numbers but there's a lot of white out there and they're running around and it's just very, uh, it, it just makes a lot of sense to you in a sensual way. And then we would always sit in the, and say, this is like, it's all sort of, uh, you're used to it. I mean, this is what we do. We sit on the third baseline. We sit about three rows up and, and we don't talk. We don't eat. We don't drink beer. And as a child, uh, I played with Bob Sir's children because his wife was pregnant every summer. <laughs> and I think I played with seven of them. And uh, that was in Kansas City. And I was allowed to run up and down the uh, bleachers with the serve children. But no, that's just part of what you do. And it's like on Christmas morning, you open your gifts. Uh, you have the Easter Bunny at Easter, and this is what I did during the baseball season. So you're essentially living, I guess, especially for that era, the dream, again, maybe unwittingly, uh, not knowing any better, of being a kid who can kind of ramble around some of uh, of the of baseball's great, you know, teams and leagues and players uh, in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. I'm guessing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. What do you remember about uh-huh. Kansas, what do you remember? Let's talk about Kansas City for a second. Obviously, you were not around oh, yeah. when this, his his playing days and stuff that that was sort of in in your rear view historical mirror and you kind of discovered that. But uh-huh. what do you remember about the Kansas City A's? Because that was an interesting team. Again, you probably didn't know uh-huh. sort of the circumstances and having been in Philadelphia prior and and frankly longing for Oakland uh, and the ownership and stuff. What do you remember about 
those years in Kansas City. Were you actually there or did you visit a lot? No, no, we would go every summer. And and what I remember uh, is that, that, you know, leaving a little town of a thousand, driving the car to Wichita Falls and getting on the train and going up on the train. And I remember those little sandwiches with the uh, toothpicks. And I would get little sandwiches on the train with the two toothpicks. And I would save the toothpicks and I would run up and down the train cars. And I can see and hear opening those big old doors with a whoosh and going into another car. And my parents, I mean, I was a little girl. I was eight. But they would let me do that. I'd just run wild on the train. And then we'd get to Kansas City and go to the Mulebach Hotel. And it was, it's no longer there. But we'd go up and I would wear a dress to the game. I remember my mother would make sure the dress was all ironed. And Louis Boudreau was Louis Boudreau's son. And Louis would always bring me chocolates. Were you the only kid kind of around that everybody could kind of dote on? They doted on me. I was totally spoiled. And but at the same time, at the same time, I was expected to look at baseball in a certain way. You don't clap. You don't act like a fool. You would never drink beer. I can't remember my father drinking anything at a game or my mother. I mean, they would always go to the Yankees at the World Series. But no, no, you just sit and watch the game. And certainly I didn't know what I was seeing as a girl, but I knew to just sit there like in church. That's a great line, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, so what we, did you study that? Did you sort of learn how to do the score? Were you bored out of your Oh, mind? no, no, no. Uh-uh. Nobody in my family ever scored a game. Mm-mm. Now, Daddy would always read the sporting news. And I was very serious about the sporting news. And then he read the sports pages. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because the, the and were you spending all of your summers there? Like, were you li- literally living in the area, or were you just kind of road tripping back and forth? No, we would go up there probably and stay two weeks. Mm-hmm. What is okay? So that what else were you sort of thinking about, or what what did you sort of absorb there? Because for for most baseball historians, right, the the time. I mean, your uncle was the first manager of this team. After they had just moved from Philadelphia, the first season in Kansas City, he's he's at the uh, he's skippering that this team. I with, do you have any awareness of the the relative newness, shall we say, of this franchise? Uh, uh, no, in, a, in, this, in this city, or you just thought this is normal. I, I'm going to watch my uncle uh, do his job, mm-hmm. and and I'm going to watch a, a baseball being played. Mm-hmm. The latter, I didn't know the historical part of it at all. Interesting. And how about the stadium itself? What do you remember about Municipal Stadium? Uh, Well, I do remember, you know, what I remember is is running up and down the stairs with the serve children. But that's about it. Nothing like I would remember the Astrodome uh, or even the stadiums here in Arlington. Certainly Yankee Stadium. But I have huge visual memories of those stadiums. When... um... When your uncle left as the manager of the A's, uh, do you have any recollection of how that happened or why, or was it just assumed he's moving on to another club? I would assume they didn't win enough games. Yeah, though, there was also uh also something else going on, too, because in 1960, Charlie Charlie Finley bought the team, and he was the guy who 
kind of was starting to angle for all kinds of changes, including color schemes and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, but um, it's clear, though, that he, Harry, had a, a knack for managing because he was back with uh, another club, the Cubs, in 61. Um, were you... Were you summering in Chicago then, too, in 1961? No, I don't remember. Ever, and I love to go to Wrigley, but I never went to a game or heard anything about that uh, period of time. I do remember that the owner of the Yankees wanted Harry to come to New York, but he would not go because he would never work for Steinbrenner. He had these very high standards as to, I mean, I assume, I'm assuming this, as to who he would work with, and he would not imagine turning down the Yankees. Because Kansas City was really, when he managed them, he was managing a farm team for, 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 for New York because so many of the players, and you know, he was Mantle's first manager. And so he knew how to get them ready to go to New York. Yeah, that's that's interesting because indeed there was a lot of accusations about the various trades between the Yankees and the A's uh, for some of those reasons that you're mentioning, and and it, it became uh, the borderline conflict of interest, and there's a whole bunch of sort of rationale as to why and how this team was sort of uh, uh, being managed, so to speak, and and interesting how the Yankees might have been his destination afterwards. And it sounds like you're, you're getting a little bit of the, uh, by uh, uh, just by being around some of the shrapnel that's going on in terms of the player trades and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, well, and, and you know, ahead. I do want to talk to you about Mickey Mantle. Oh, I've heard of him. Go ahead. What, what, what of <laughs> he's kind of an important character. <laughs> because he, uh, okay. I'm 70. Uh, so when I was 12 in Throckmorton, Texas, they were going to have Harry Craft Day. And the little town loved these days where you honor a citizen who had lived there and it was a big deal and we didn't go to school. And I remember daddy said to me, he said, and I, gosh, I'm, I was 10 maybe. And he said, now, Mickey Mantle is going to come to our house and I want you to use your good manners and, you know, make sure you've brushed your hair and all that. And I said, Oh my gosh, I don't know. Isn't he famous? I'll be sort of embarrassed. And he said, honey, remember he put his pants on this morning, just like you did. (laughs) And daddy was always giving me all this sage advice which he gave to his brother. But I will remember Mickey coming in. And then later I, in my book, I talk about uh, going out to where Preston Trails Golf Club, an all-male golf club in Dallas, uh, where they just gamble and drink, I think. But I went out to get him to sign a ball for the dean of Dedman College at SMU. And I was in my Nissan, and I drive out there, and he is standing at the front door with his arms full of stuff, sign balls and pins and all this stuff. And he came out to the car, and I remember 
uh, I got up just, I mean, got out of my car as a way of just respecting him. And he said, get back in your car. No girls allowed. (laughs) So I get back in the car and he gets in there with all this stuff and he handed it to me and he was so, I don't know if he ever knew he signed anything for a college dean, but that impressed him. And I started fixating on his upper arms. You know, that's where the power came from. I've never seen such muscular arms in my life. And see, I remember that like it was yesterday. Do you remember anything about your uncle uh, and his impression of Mantle uh, to the point of knowing, perhaps, or or, uh, just how special a talent Mantle was? Yeah. I do know that because when Mickey, uh, he, he met him, he went to his hometown, met his dad. And, you know, the dad was such a interesting person, put a lot of pressure on his son. And so Mickey, he, he, he worked out with him. He, he worked out with him and he was a shortstop. And he said, no, I'm putting you in right field. That's where you need to be. And I don't really know why that is. Maybe you're less injury prone in the right field. I don't know that. But he put him in right field, and uh, he just was sort of like a father figure to Mickey Mantle, I think. Yeah, and um, I, I, if I have this right, I think uh, your Uncle Harry was uh, uh, had uh, uh, got the chance to uh, uh, coach and mentor and, and uh, uh, some tutelage uh, a couple of different stops in the minors as they were both progressing. Um, mm-hmm. I think the sort of the... Uh, the sort of launching pad was uh, for for both of them, frankly, was when they were both at the uh, Kansas City Blues of the American Association in fifty three four. Okay, and see, I don't know much about that era at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's but but that's but it's it's uh-huh. it's interesting to know because it's clear that Mantle uh-huh. had some affection for your for your uncle, uh, especially great the affection, days. and even Billy Martin did. Can you imagine? Well, that's hard to come and, and- by. See, that's almost unheard of. And I think they really knew that Harry was there for them and they didn't didn't need to act like fools. And they probably would feel embarrassed. Uh, in fact, when, oh, what did Harry do when, uh, during the home run race with Maris? You remember that? Well, Maris was real flighty and, I think really basically an insecure man, very religious guy. So he was in, with the Yankees, of course, then. But I believe it was Harry's idea or something happened where they thought if they put Mantle at, with him, it would calm him down. And I think it did. And also Bob Serve. So those two roomed with Maris during the home run race to calm him down. Well, that's interesting you bring up Maris because your uncle was uh, credited with uh, uh, bringing him, if you will, into uh, the t- the upper echelons of the major leagues with the with with the with the A's in '58 and '59. And again, here comes that sort of Yankee, uh, 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 I don't know, uh, uh, interesting connection or connective tissue because Maris wound up uh, with the Yankees and and and. Uh, greatness uh, along with Mantle for, for, for many, many years, right? Historic. At, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, Bob Serve. And uh, do you know, I own the baseball with Don Larson's signature. And that's the only 
uh, World Series perfect game that will ever be. You know, Don Larson threw the perfect game. Well, so you have a ball from that game? Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. I'm in my den and I'm looking at it right now. How how did you uh, how did you how did you get that but how did you get such Harry a- would bring us balls during the off season when he arrived in Throckmorton after this and, and then he'd go to the winter meetings eventually. He always talked about the winter meetings, I remember that. But before the winter meetings he would stay with us a few days in Throckmorton and Daddy and Harry would hunt quail. But he would bring me these autographed baseballs. And also, I was looking back, Harry managed Don Larson in the minor leagues, I think in Beaumont, Texas. And I have a picture of Don Larson right there. Isn't that interesting? That's fantastic. What, what other players stand out, or do, do you remember, of his that that were similarly tutelaged? I mean, because you're talking about three greats right yeah. there alone. Yeah, three greats. Uh, well, those are the ones that stand out. And Billy Martin, and Harry said, never had any problem with them. Never. Billy Martin gave me no. I mean, this was when Billy is if a you player, had ever met right? Harry. Hmm? This is when Billy is a player, right? Yeah. And he was just always a mess. <laughs> you know, they, he, I'm surprised that That's what makes a great Nikki, manager. Don't you understand that? <laughs> but Mickey and Billy Martin in New York, they'd be in a hotel and they would climb out, get this, the window, maybe on the 17th floor of a hotel. And they would walk outside on the outside of the building on the ledge to look in the window at other players and their wives. How off the wall they were. That sounds pretty sanitized. Now, Harry didn't know that. That's I mean, not, and that was out of his business. That sounds pretty sanitized to me based on having grown up in New York and heard many, many other stories. <laughs> not a, not okay, many yes. of them, by the way, sober, from what I understand. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I think so. All right. Well, so, so. Uh, well. so t- tell me about um, – that, that's fascinating. But, I mean, I guess the, the fact of the matter is that uh, while you weren't sort of immediately conscious of – these greats, shall we say, in your presence as your Uncle Harry is managing this team and the situations as to why they're there and how they uh, were going to go through uh, into Yankee land, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. What do you let's fast forward a little bit to uh, the uh, hinted at earlier Houston Colt 45s, because your uncle had a uh, went to Chicago for, I think, a season or so in 61. Well, they call that the College of not the College of Managers or something because it was a rotating group of managers. So he was not at Wrigley very long. There was I don't know what was going on up there, but several managers rotated at Wrigley. Yeah, it's interesting. There's, there's this term head coach, which is kind of an odd sort of thing, which is different than a manager. Um, it seems like yeah, there, there was I'm call it a recycling or a just a, a reposting, I guess, of, of some of the quality uh, uh, managers out there to sort of keep the um, to keep them fresh for whatever their next uh, assignment might be. So. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I don't recall much conversation in our home about that. And mother and daddy never went to Wrigley. Now, I've been to Wrigley uh, and I have a great chapter in my book on how I got to Wrigley. But uh, anyway, but yeah, I remember that. And I have a picture of him with his Cubs hat on Harry's. Cubs hat on. All right. Well, tell me about Houston because uh, before the Colt okay. 45s, um, 
your uncle was uh, managing back in the minors with the uh, the then AAA team, I think called the Buffs, if I'm not mistaken. Um, okay. Well, you, yeah, I, I you, vaguely, were still, you were still living in Texas at that time and still... Oh, yeah, we never time. moved. Right, right, never moved out of... But what I remember, that summer for me, I was 17 and I had to go to Mexico to take Spanish because my little town didn't have Spanish. And to go to the University of Texas, I needed foreign language. So I remember getting on the plane and flying from Monterey, Mexico that summer to Houston. And that's when I went to the Astrodome. And Harry was not managing the Astrodome, but he had managed the Colt 45s. So basically, uh, was he not doing anything? I mean, he was, you know, he was always talking about the front office and I don't know who he would have been managing then, but I do remember where I sat in the Astrodome and I sat by the owner, Mr. Bob Smith, trillionaire, and he was one of the owners, and he always wore white suits, Mr. Smith. And we're sitting there, and he says to me, look around at all these boxes. And then uh, Stein, not Steinbrenner, but who was the owner of the Astros, who was such a jerk, Judge Hoffines. Sure. His job, his box was behind a Gulf oil sign and it was just ostentatious. It was an outfield. And he said, look around at the boxes. And he said to me, never sit in a box. You're to sit down here where the people are. Isn't that beautiful? So you You are to sit down here. You didn't get to see Harry play, play, manage or uh, during the, um, the three years, shall we say, in uh, in limbo before, as the dome was being constructed, uh, well, that outdoor that outdoor facility that was just probably god awful hot. Yeah, I did see the god awful hot place. It was horrible. I mean, there were mosquitoes. It was terrible. But yeah, I went to some of the Coke Forty Five games, and I have a book about the Coke Forty Fives. It, it was really tacky. You know, they had. Uh, people that would serve food in these short outfits. It was just really cheap and tacky is the way I can describe it and hot. And you got bitten by mosquitoes. So, but I think if I'm not mistaken, I guess it was called Colt stadium. Is that right? Uh Colt 45s. Mm -hmm. But the stadium I think was called Colt stadium and it was temporary, right? Based on the fact, I guess Houston and and the Astrodome was being built. Correct. Uh That was, I guess, part of the allure and why the national league said, Let's do it. This thing will actually be built. Um, I'm just really curious as to how could you sense how your uncle uh, was sort of handling all this? I mean, did, did he feel temporary, if you will? And and was it what did you feel like the situation was temporary, given the fact that it was all going to be moving into the Astrodome eventually? No, I think with him. He just approached baseball. I mean, he had a serious look in his eye all the time when you got to talking about the games or something. Uh, there was never he was never emotional about anything that I recall. Uh, just always very handsome man and ser- serious and stern about baseball. So he wasn't the type to be sort of sidetracked or. Distracted. Not to my knowledge. Uh-uh. 
I think he had great self-confidence in his skills, but knew that you got to win and you got to have good players and everything has to go together. And so he was confident in that. All right, what's this? Prize picks. My goodness, of course, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports is prize picks. What is it? Well, glad you asked. Literally, it's straightforward and the simplest and most fun way you can do daily fantasy sports. All you got to do is pick as few as two or as many as five different players in a sport or, frankly, across a whole multitude of sports and simply predict whether those players will get more or less than their projection. Maybe in baseball, that's strikeouts. Uh, They're going to pitch more or less strikeouts than predicted. Uh, How about uh, in football? That could be touchdown passes. Uh, In basketball, that could be three-point shot attempts made, Uh, etc. Literally, all you got to do is pick whether they're more or less than their predicted outcomes. And you can choose and mix and match sports as well. You don't have to pick two or three or four or five players in just one sport. No, you can pick a couple of players in across different sports. And boy, oh boy, when I say different sports, Prize Picks has a wide variety. It's all the major leagues and sports that you can think of from the NFL and Major League Baseball, all the way into various niche sports. Sports? Sports? No, sports like MMA or disc golf. Uh, perhaps even lacrosse or um, various forms of boxing or even esports. Prize Picks has daily fantasy picks for you across all of those and more. Again, try them out. It's really easy and it's a hell of a lot of fun. And you can win big bucks too. You can go the flex play model, which basically means you don't have to choose and succeed with every single one of your picks, but you'll still get paid. Or you can go the power play mode, which basically rewards you with more money if you get every single one of your predictions correct. It's awesome, and it's uh, fun to play for sure, and that really uh, uh, brings uh, uh, your live sports uh, viewing into uh, a whole different realm of excitement. And of course, we've got a promo for you as well. So all you got to do is download the Prize Picks app on your uh, Android or your Apple device, or go to prizepicks.com. That's P-R-I-Z-E-P-I-C-K-S.com, and sign up and play your daily fantasy sports right now. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, prize picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, prize picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget to enter the promo code GOODSEATS when you sign up at prizepicks.com or on the Prize Picks app and get that instant deposit match right up to 100 bucks. Go for it. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you, Prize Picks. And now back to our conversation. Any uh, memories of the players from that 45s couple of years? Uh, you may or may not remember some names, but Rusty Staub and Joe Morgan and Turk Farrell. I don't know if any of those names... Well, yeah, but I remember Joe Morgan from the Reds. Sure. Don't I? Yeah. Okay, and then who's the first one? He made his debut, I think, in 63. Who's the first one you mentioned? Uh, Rusty Staub? The Redhead. 
Rusty Stog. Around the yes. ultimately in Montreal years later. But here's my Rusty Stob story. Uh, I'm a psychologist, a licensed PhD, clinical, and I had an opportunity to work at Ground Zero. And I was a mental health professional for six months in 2001. And I worked at St. Paul's Chapel, if you remember the history of the towers and St. Paul's Chapel was right there. And Rusty Staubs started a huge, huge, he just contributed all this money for the families of the firefighters. And uh, I did not see him during that time, but I have several little t-shirts. And he was just so magnanimous in giving these, having these big fundraisers for them to raise money for the widows of the people who were lost. Isn't that amazing, Rusty Staub? Yeah, and he was a beloved Mets player for many years. Uh, along so I guess it would. I didn't know that part, and now I do know that part. But then that would certainly uh, increasingly help us understand how much he loved New York and how he wanted to help. Interesting. So these these Colt forty five games, they weren't in the. Were they in the evenings? Were they during the day? I mean, I I know it must the humidity must have been just unbearable. <laughs> Well, and there were mosquitoes everywhere. They were, it was horrible. I've blotted it out. But I do remember I would come home from a game, an afternoon game, and get in the swimming pool at the hotel because I really thought I, I might die. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. Did you? That's all. And cheap and real cheap. <laughs> like the people that served drinks and stuff that were short skirts. Horrible. Well, that, that carried over when they became the Astros. Um, but you're mentioning the Astrodome. If I have this correct, though, um, Uncle Harry uh, uh, lost the gig after the 64 season just before they were ready to move into the Astrodome. So he didn't get the the pleasure or the, I don't know, the distinction of being able to to move in with the the newly named Astros that next year. Uh Uh-huh. You're right. He never coached the Astros. But we still went went to the games. any, Any understanding of the situation? Uh, around there, were you off to college by that point? Well, I was, it was my last year of high school. There was never any emotion, uh, that I would be aware of from either my dad or my, or or uncle Harry. And it, it seemed to me that I just realized that's the way baseball goes. It's tough and you gotta win. And you know, that's just the way baseball go. Who said that? Ron Washington. That's the way baseball go. You just got to win. And so I never felt uh, any sense of real sadness about it. Like I would feel later about teams I fell in love with as an adult. Yeah. I mean, look, also uh, essentially being given the, um, uh, the, the task, the thankless task, right. Of, of, uh, managing a, a, an expansion franchise, right? It's different today because you can kind of buy your way to competitiveness a little, little easier than it was back in the day, right? But, you know, I mean, it's 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 almost like, I mean, I think, frankly, with the Kansas City A's as well, which was essentially a a reboot from from their move from Philadelphia, right? So, you know- And see, I never knew that, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. challenge and mm-hmm. a half, right? So, 
um, you know, uh, they, they, I think if I'm not mistaken, um, in 63 and 64, they were essentially the, they were the worst team in the National League ahead of only the aforementioned New York Mets, right? Which themselves were an expansion franchise. So, you know, I, in some respects, you kind of know what you're getting. It's a great opportunity, but, you know, the, the, if you're able to break out of the basement in your first couple of years as major league manager of an expansion franchise, that's saying something. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like he was able to able to achieve that despite all of his his talents, especially in the minors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. But I mean, it, as I said earlier, no one in my family was sad about it. It's just like, this is the way baseball go. <laughs> you know, just, this is the way it go. And uh, isn't that interesting? I mean, I felt I fell in love with the Texas Rangers and was so sad when they lost the World Series. But uh, and sometimes I still feel that way about the Yankees, but not as a child. I don't remember anyone being heartbroken. So, okay, a couple of couple of questions to kind of round out the cul-de-sac here. What did what did Uncle Harry do after that Houston managerial experience? Um, Did he get out of the game altogether? Did he go elsewhere into the game? What, What did he wind up doing? You know, that's a really good question. Uh, I think he basically, well, he scouted a little bit. I went to a game where he was scouting a kid who was playing for San Antonio, and uh, he scouted a little bit. And then I think he hunted and fished his greatest loves. Yeah, I don't recall any more professional baseball gigs. So we kind of maybe sort of segued out of the game altogether. Did did he segue into any other kind of uh, business or career or any of that kind of stuff? No, didn't sell cars. <laughs> no, mm mm mm. That's that's a really good question because he still uh, he still stayed in. You know, he was in the uh, when they had he would go to the World Series always, and remember when they had the. Uh, her, I mean, uh, the earthquake in San Francisco at, during the World Series. Sure, he was at that game. So he uh-huh. never, he, he never lost his love for the game. Although the game maybe professionally wasn't continuing to love him back, so to speak. No, I mean, and I don't think he lo- I don't think he ever looked at it that way. It was like uh, I don't, I don't know what his heart felt, but we love, we always love baseball. If you're a baseball person like me, you always love it. No matter if you have a bad team that you love or blah, blah, blah. It's baseball. You love it. Mm-hmm. How did your um, your baseball affinities uh, evolve as you grew up? Obviously, you're going to college. You're, you're learning, leaning into a career. You've got graduate school, et cetera. Um, does baseball well, I think, go to the back of your mind at that point and then it can, can resurrect yeah. somehow later? Well, and I think that's an interesting question because uh, there were years I didn't go to games and I don't know why. I, I just was not that engaged in baseball. I got married. I had children. You mean life happened? Life happens, but you would think I'm so, this is my heritage. I just really was not that compelled by it for some reason. Really not for too many years, though. Uh, And then 
in the book, I talk a lot about my daughter. Liza is 47. And I tell you, the baseball gods really gave her some amazing experiences. Uh, And she went to her first game in Arlington Stadium, and she sat in the owner's box, which I thought was terrible because I don't believe in sitting in a box. But she was there, and she just fell in love with baseball. And her first comments to me were, because after the game, they were in the owner's box, and after the game, they met some of the players. And she said, Mom, they're so cute, and they smell good. (laughs) So anyway, so she loves baseball. And then uh, we would go to spring training when my children, my two, and I had a son four years younger, and she made posters for all the Texas Rangers, you know, and sent them to Port Charlotte, Florida. She just loved, loved the game. And we would buy the Texas Rangers cookbook, and we would cook uh, Jeff Kunkel pancakes. <laughs> I mean, she was totally just obsessed with it. And so, uh, they're, you know, they go off to college, they have their own lives. And then we love Chris Young. Uh, he is my son's best friend and they grew up together and, uh, his mom and dad and I, we went to so many of Chris's games and they're great chapters about Chris Young, you know, here he is now, the total head of the Texas Rangers, and he'll turn it around. But uh, so we had that part of of, of spring training, and uh, then Liza is working in public relations in St. Louis, and they said, "We have a job for you, Liza." They didn't know she loved baseball, and they said, "You're going to tell a story in a video." It, it will be a video, and you're tell, to tell a story about a baseball. And she said, oh, I can do it. And the baseball was Stitches. That was its name. It had its own van. So Liza and the van and Stitches, they go out to California, and they go up, up the coast of California, and it stops uh, on occasion, and people throw stitches, like she said, people in wheelchairs threw stitches, and nuns threw stitches, little children threw stitches, and uh, she gets to a certain point, and she takes a little video of uh, two little boys throwing stitches, and she said, well, I took this little video because the light was what we call the golden hour of the day, and it was just the perfect time to take the video. So they go all the way up to San Francisco, and the San Francisco team is opening its franchise there. They're leaving the East Coast. They're going to the West Coast. And before Willie Mays comes out to throw Stitches, who by now is black and he's little, Stitches are coming off. They show her 14-second video that she has made. And I said, Liza, that was just a beautiful video, and you were able to do it. And I said, how did you know how to do it? And she said, that was my brother. 
because she remembered her brother Jeff throwing the baseball. Isn't that beautiful? It has a harmonic uh, ring to it. Yeah, well, I'm sort of telling it that way, but I thought, okay, my daughter, Harry Craft's great niece, it's just all our stuff. You know, we just kind of, these baseball experiences happen to us. What kind of um, memorabilia do you do you have besides that Don, Don Larson ball? I, I got to think, are you a collector? <laughs> do, you have, do you have any things that no. are similarly uh, valuable or intriguing or interesting from your baseball journey? Well, uh, and the balls, the, uh, the Yankee ball, the 56 Yankee ball with Don Larson will go to my son. I would never sell any of this stuff. And it's all out for me to look at. I don't hide it. I look at it. And I have a Ted Williams uh, ball. I have Kansas City balls. I now have the, you know, I have a Chris Young ball. <clears throat> and he's now our general manager. He's a great kid. And my son's best friend. I think I told you that. But yeah, I have a collection and I just have them up here looking at them. And then I have a baseball given to me by Ruben Puente. And I told you that story about the home run race. Yeah, between Maris and Mantle? Yes. No, 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 no. This is the one uh, in St. Louis. The Cardinals, when he broke the home run record, and they were using drugs then. Oh, what was his name? Now oh, I can't yeah, yeah, Mark remember. McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I have I had one of Mark McGuire's balls that went out. And the story about that, uh, I taught child development at night to a Master of Liberal Arts class. And so in 94, in August, we start class, and this very nice Hispanic gentleman, Ruben Puente, comes to me, and he said, Dr. Denton, I'm going to have to miss some classes. And he said, I'll make them up. I said, well, Ruben, we just started. It's August. And he said, well, do you know about the McGuire, the home run race? I said, yeah. And he said, well, I've got to travel with him because I am marking the baseballs. I said, you're what? He said, well, when that ball goes out and he hit him to left field, uh, you've got a $4 million ball. So you can just scuff a ball, put it in your pocket, pull it out, and you've got it. So we've got a, you know, baseball is very precise and pure when they get to something like this. And so I said, Ruben, you take as much time as you need. <laughs> and I have one of those balls right in my office. And I said, yeah, you just come back whenever. So, uh, so what Ruben had invented, he marked the baseball, but the batter or the pitcher could not tell. You couldn't see anything on it. It was a pure, you know how baseball, it's a pure baseball. And what would happen, uh, Several of these balls would go out to the pitcher when McGuire came up. But, you know, no one really knew what was happening. They did that all the time. And so when Mark McGuire hit that home run ball, the FBI was standing out, saw who got the ball, and then they took the ball back to my student, Ruben, and he shone his light on it. And, yes, that was the ball. And I thought, Thank you for letting, you know, thank you for Ruben being in my class. That's sort of interesting. And then one more story. Uh, I had a friend in Fort Worth, and the grandfather was driving 
home from rural Texas to Fort Worth, and he fell asleep, had a wreck, and his little grandson was paralyzed from the race, from the waist down, which is just horrible. I can't imagine anything more awful for both the child and the grandfather. But that summer, there was a rehab place in Chicago, and I heard that he was going up there uh, for treatment. And I thought, you know, I think I'll get him Cubs tickets. So I get on the phone from in Dallas, and I just say, okay, I want four uh, tickets to a Cubs game, and uh, th- uh, there will be a little boy in, in a wheelchair if you can get him to the area of the uh, uh, of Wrigley that accommodates people in wheelchairs. And they said, oh, fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, guess what that day was at Wrigley? Handicap day. They didn't know it. I didn't know it. But when he goes to the game, there are all these people sitting by him, more than usual, in wheelchairs. And the pitcher that throws out the first pitch is in a wheelchair. There you go. I mean, and that's, again, basically. Now, what is that? What do you think that is? Fate? <laughs> I mean, that's really a lot of stuff, isn't it? <laughs> and it, it must he must have had a great time, though, no? Oh, yeah. What uh, kept David Wrigley? What uh, so? Give me a sense of um, what you want folks to know about um, this story uh, of 108 Stitches because it, it's clearly a memoir, but it's also a little bit of history. Uh, it's it's a, a bit of a a, a memory of uh, your uncle. Um, there's a lot of sort of layers i guess to to this but it sounds mm-hmm. like you're theming it all the through line for all of it is this thing perhaps somewhat magical of baseball yeah i think you hit the nail on the head baseball is uh because of all of the above that we've talked about i mean it, it's it's my childhood uh it's definitely my family and my greatest perhaps my greatest memories Uh, over a long life. All righty. Thank you to Addie Beth. Fun, interesting, memorable times growing up. What a perch she had uh, getting to watch and and, and, uh, be part of uh, the dugouts and the, 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 the smells and the uh, the environments of the, of the ballpark and some of the greatest names uh, in baseball history. My, oh my, and a great memoir uh, to uh, recollect and remember those things. Called 108 Stitches, A Girl Grows Up with Baseball. It is part of the Texas Sports Hero Series from the publisher Texas Tech University Press. It is available now wherever fine books are found. And of course, you can find a convenient link to it uh, on Amazon uh, through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 275 with Addie Beth Denton, and you will find a convenient link to said book, and you can get a copy of said book for you to enjoy and to go deeper into uh, from just our brief uh, thumbnail of conversational memories. Um Lots of great stuff uh, buried within uh, those pages. Um, let's see. You can also 
uh, while you're online, go to our website at goodseatsaleavailable.com and tool around to all the other episodes. Why don't you? Um, it's uh, it's awesome. There's plenty of them uh, there. Uh, plenty of them for you to uh, sample, to share with your friends, and all of our episodes will be there. Of course, the easiest and best way, right, is to uh, make sure that you subscribe or follow uh, on your various uh, friendly podcast app feeds. That's uh, the quickest way to make sure that you know you're getting the very latest episodes. And uh, you can follow us on social media, of course. We're at um, on Twitter. You'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, let's see, on uh Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And yes, there is a Facebook page devoted to us too at Good Seats Still Available. You may send us email by all means. Hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's the address for that. And uh, what else? Our pal Jerry Payne, thank you for your knob twiddling once again this week. And um, let's leave you now with a little musical interlude, a little, uh, uh, you know, a, a doffing, shall we say, or a tipping of the Houston Colt 45's cap in your general directions uh, as we uh, lead you out with the official Houston Colt 45's fight song that you might have heard uh, in um, listening to games uh, on the Houston Colt 45's radio network. It's the Johnny Mann Singers featuring the Alan Ferguson Orchestra. It's Shoot 'Em Down, the Houston Colt 45's fight song. Here it is. Thank you for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Shoot em down, Houston Colts, fire away, Houston Colts, we're in the game to stay. Shoot em down, Houston Colts, blast away, Houston Colts, we're with you all the way. You'll hear the broadcasts every day, or go through the park and cheer them on the way. Strike them up, roll them up, double play, all the way, shoot em down, Houston Colts. That's the way to go. Strike them up, roll them up, double play, all the way, shoot them down. Houston Colts!